Hello, this is Matt Caston, co-host of the Bulldog Educator Podcast. Good podcasting is about compelling narratives. Great podcasting is about compelling narratives shared by phenomenal people. Here at the Bulldog Educator Podcast, my co-host Kirsten and I want to make sure we highlight these compelling narratives and phenomenal people all in the context of education. We wanted to start season five by sharing compelling narratives that are all too often overlooked. As such, we work to highlight the phenomenal people behind these great stories, their work and their spirit. Always with an angle on education, the stories we highlight are incredibly important to how we educate ourselves, how we educate others, and to the very fabric of education itself. All of our guests are special. And this season, we want to start things off highlighting a bit of my personal work living and working at the nexus of education and black history. We hope you enjoy our great guests as they share their incredible stories, their incredible history of their work, and their incredible spirit. Thank you. Welcome back to the Bulldog Educator Podcast, and welcome to episode two of season five. This podcast content is developed through a collaboration between the co-hosts, Matt Caston and myself, Kirsten Wilson, and the input from our listeners just like you. Hello, everybody. It's so great to be back for episode two. Matt? Yes, indeed it is. Hello, hello to our guests. And today we have the pleasure of talking with a wonderful guest, scholar, researcher, writer, and historian, Dr. Sharice Jones-Branch. Now, this is the first time that we are meeting, quote-unquote, Dr. Jones-Branch. In some of my research into the origins of Black education in Arkansas, I was encouraged to reach out to Dr. Jones-Branch by Guy Lancaster, who's the editor of the Encyclopedia of Arkansas. Shout out to Guy. When I looked up Dr. Jones-Branch, I was blown away by her work and research into Black history, civil rights, and U.S. Southern women's history, which I found really, really fascinating. Dr. Jones Branch has taught at Ohio State University, where she received her PhD in American history, and at Arkansas State University, where she currently serves as the Dean of the Graduate School of History. She is the author of Crossing the Line, Women's Interracial Activism in South Carolina During, during and After World War II, co-editor of Arkansas Women, Their Lives and Times, and a whole slew of journal articles, book chapters, and book reviews. It is our pleasure to welcome Dr. Jones Branch to the Bulldog Educator Podcast. Dr. Jones Branch, please tell our audience a little bit more about yourself. Well, thank you for for having me and 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 doing this and allowing me to do it from home. Thrilled to be here, and I've been at Arkansas State University now for going on twenty one years, and I came there fresh out of graduate school from Ohio State University as an assistant professor. And over the years, I moved up through the ranks, was promoted to full professor, was an endowed professor. And then I said, you know, I want to switch trajectories for a minute and try something different. And I applied for and became dean of the graduate school. And so that's what I've been doing for for the past four years. As I always like to tell people, I love my life here in Arkansas, but I'm not a native Arkansan. I'm not a native of the Mid-South. I actually was born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina. And so I have no roots in the Delta. Uh, I have family in the Delta by marriage, but I myself am not from the Delta and in fact had never heard of the Arkansas Delta until I moved to Arkansas. But in the time that I've been here, it's it's been a wonderfully interesting place to read about and study about and do research about. And, and it really is the work that I enjoy doing most right now when it comes to my research. 
Well, that is wonderful. Dr. Jones Branch, Kirsten and I are so excited to have you on the Bulldog Educator Podcast. I'm always grateful for educators and folks uh, who do this kind of work. And I'm always curious as to what drives people like you in doing this work. So my first question is, how did you find yourself doing this kind of work? I stumbled onto it. I tell people now that I'm a rural and agricultural historian. When I was in graduate school, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. I was, I've always been very interested in women's activism and civil rights activism. And as you said, my first book was on black and white women's civil rights activism in South Carolina. And in the process of writing that book, one of the black women I wrote about was named Sarah Daniels. And she was a home demonstration agent. She worked for the South Carolina Cooperative Agricultural Extension Service as a home demonstration agent. I didn't know what that was. And by the point that I began to understand that was a thing, that book had already gone to press. So I decided to look into what that was and what they did in Arkansas. And I uncovered this wonderfully interesting world of farm and home demonstration ages in Arkansas and, and throughout the South and the work they did in rural communities. And in truth, I never meant for any of it to go as far as it did. I wrote a conference paper on African-American home demonstration agents in Arkansas at a small, a small thing in Little Rock. And I figured that was gonna be the end of it and I wouldn't do anything else with it. And then of course, it became a book later on. I, I, I not only learned about home demonstration agents and the Arkansas Agricultural Extension Service, I learned about all the work that people have always done in rural communities that no one thought to write about, especially from the perspective of African-Americans. And, and in, in, the, in the process of doing that work, what I discovered was people talk a lot about African-Americans and people leaving the South for urban areas or for the North, what have you. But very few people wrote about how Black people chose to stay in the South. And the fact that they weren't all sharecroppers, some of them were landowners who had people sharecropping for them. And they were politically engaged and they were engaged in social organizations and, and they established institutions and they had businesses. So there was this whole complex world that I knew nothing about. And I think most people didn't know anything about it or just assumed that that kind of world didn't exist around Black people in the rural South. But nothing could be farther from the truth. That's what I discovered. I find this interesting on two levels. Uh, Dr. Sharice, uh, I, I find this extremely interesting, number one, because my father is an agricultural extension agent, retired from mm -hmm. that the um, state agency that was um, in Little Rock. So mm -hmm. I grew up um, the first half of my life that he did that. We moved away for a little bit and then he returned to uh, the Ag Extension Service um, after I graduated from high school um, and then retired from there. So I find this very interesting because as you say, a lot of people don't know about that aspect of support and education that's offered in the state mm -hmm. of Arkansas, but it's such a critical piece because over 68% of our population and where people live is considered rural. And okay. the largest, uh, I'm just sharing a factoid for our listeners, the largest export in the state of Arkansas and actually um, in the world, the largest rice export is Arkansas. Right. And, um, and so that's a fundamental part of not only uh, supporting our farmers and our rural um, farms, um, but it's also substantially important to the economy in Arkansas. Um, and so 
um, you know, and there's so many aspects to that. So that very much intrigues me. And I, I'm now more intrigued by reading your work because um, it actually has a direct application because there are many times at dinner, I listen to conversations about um, supporting farmers and we often ate food that came from the land of those farmers. Um, and mm -hmm. so uh, that's very intriguing to me. So thank you for sharing that piece. Um, <laughs> another piece that um, I would really like to hear about is one of your recent projects, which was better living by their better living by their own bootstraps, mm -hmm. rural black women's activism in Arkansas, 1913 to 1965. Mm -hmm. um, that span of time covers so many interesting things that happened in for black Americans in history. Um, but also specifically with Black women and activism, because um, there there's so many things that went on with that um, regarding the right to vote, um, owning property, um, mm -hmm. the ability to um, um, have the same rights uh, as white people, Jim Crow laws, and all that kind of stuff was happening during that time. So that that time span, tell me a little bit more about that project. Absolutely. That book came out in, in 20. 21. And again, it started off as a conference paper. I never imagined that it was going to become a book. And I just kept writing and I kept finding more information and I kept uncovering things that people hadn't looked at in a very long time or ever. And I said, okay, there's something to this story here. And again, for me, what became incredibly important was challenging the narrative of rural black life. We think we understand what it is. We think, and many people still believe this, think it's about poor beleaguered black folks. And that is a story. It's not the only story. And that's what I uncovered really, really quickly. And so I write about these black women who were employed by the Arkansas Agricultural Extension Service at a very dangerous time in our history because the Agricultural Extension Service was segregated. It was segregated until the 1960s. Um, and so these women are hired to work for the Arkansas Agricultural Extension Service, but they're doing it under difficult circumstances. Number one, they're not being paid the same as white home demonstration agents. And there are quorum court records in all of these newspapers that say very clearly who's getting paid what. So for example, you can see where a white home demonstration agent might be paid $2,000 a year. The black home demonstration agent might only make 800. Now, if that's not a discrepancy, I don't know what it is. And it's right there in the papers. I don't have to make any of this up. So they knew what they were doing. They understood that they were paying this person less. But it wasn't just the home demonstration agents. It was also black women who were jeans industrial supervising teachers. So these were black educators who were paid from a fund, in part from a fund that had been established by a white Quaker woman from Philadelphia in 1907. And what that fund did was that it paid part of the black teacher's salary, and then the local school board had to pay the rest of it. And their job was to come into the South and teach black folks, but not the kind of education that would make them want to go on to college or someplace like that. It was to have a better educated agricultural labor force. That's what it was. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's all that these women did. There's what they were told they had to do. There's what they were tasked with doing. And then there's what they actually did. And those are two very different things. So yeah, they're teaching these folks the basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. 
But they're also talking about things like paying poll taxes so you can vote. So there's all this kind of activism. And that was one of the things that was challenging to me about doing this work, because when I first talked to other people who had written about home demonstration agents in Arkansas, they said, oh, the, all the agents did the same thing. And I said, that's not true. That can't be true. This is rural Jim Crow, Arkansas. No, they're not operating under the same sort of guidelines by any stretch of the imagination. And they're getting paid less than half of what these other folks are being paid. So how are they managing to work in these communities, navigating Jim Crow, navigating hostility because they're working with these uh, black laborers, which people really depended upon once upon a time? What, what, what are they able to accomplish and what is the risk for them for doing this work? Right. And so I started looking into all of that and also looking at their organizational affiliations. Almost all of these black women were members of the Arkansas Association of Colored Women, which still exists to this day. Many of them were college educated. Uh, the Jane supervising industrial teachers and the black home demonstration agents, virtually every last one of them had college education. They were members of historically African-American sororities, all of which still exist to this day. And so this is a side of rural life that people hadn't thought about before. People tr traditionally think Black people were engaged in organizations or became educated once they left the South or went to an urban part of the South, because the migration is not just to the North, it's the difference between going from Mississippi to Memphis, right? Um, and so, no, there, there are entire worlds there that no one ever thought about and no one ever touched any of the documentation that talks about these things. And a lot of the documentation, quite frankly, wasn't even available in the archives. So it meant that I had to utilize a different set of skills in order to get some of the information I did. That is truly fascinating. Um, and I love these kind of conversations because it, it, it continues to, as you kind of alluded to, add layers, not only to the history, but our understanding of, of the people, the land, the development of, of the politics. Um, and I'm just curious, because I, I, ran, I ran across the same issue in my own research where, like you said, some of the documentation was not in traditional spaces, right? Not in the archives. You can't find it. So where, where did you find this, this information? Well, I a, a couple of places. I spent a lot of time reading online newspapers. Online newspapers. I have a subscription to newspapers.com. I work for a university, so we have an African-American newspaper database. We have an African-American periodicals uh, database. Uh, a lot of things have been digitized. So there are things that I could access now in minutes that I couldn't have 15 years ago. So I was, I was able to read all of those things. And what, what was really interesting to me, talk about busting myths, some people have said, well, if you read about Black people in mainstream newspapers, it's always going to be about them committing crime or doing something like that. That's not true. That's not true. They often reported about Jean's teachers being in the area. They often reported about African-American farm agents and home demonstration agents. They often reported about Black club activity and things like that. And so I read through all of that stuff. In fact, that's one of the things I love to do is just to sit there and look at digital newspapers and, and to find a needle in the haystack. Like that's when I really get excited is when I find something that I don't expect to find. And I tell younger researchers, don't leave any stone unturned. Don't assume that it's not there because you'll probably be wrong, right? 
And I also look at things like hoffitrust.org, um, which is an archival website. I look at, I don't know, there's another one called archive.org. And I just do random searches and try to, to find all these different sorts of things. And, and again, you would be surprised at how many documents have been recorded that people haven't looked at since they were printed, I don't know, 70 or 75, 75 years ago. But the other thing that's interesting is looking in the archives, sometimes it's, it's, it's the, little, the little piece of a trail that you find and you don't know where it leads, but you know it's gonna lead somewhere. And so you just sort of latch onto that and then you follow it until you find whatever it is you think it, it might be. So it really, is, it really is sleuthing and it really is allowing yourself to think very broadly about where resources are and what might be in those resources. I mean, I, I have been absolutely you know, astonished. There's a lot about rural black folks in the NAACP papers. It's not just about what's going on with black folks in the city, it's also about what's going on with black folks in rural areas, right? So that's a lot of what I did. I just spent a lot of time looking at, at those documents and, 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 and also putting them aside for a while, for a few months, because what I find is you put those aside, you move on to looking at something else, you go back, you see things you didn't see before. So I've, I've had that experience quite a bit where I thought, oh, I thought I was done with this source. And then I go back and find two, three, four, five other things that I didn't expect to, to find in there. And that usually happens because I've read some more, I've written about some other things, I've let my mind go off in other directions, but then I come back to this refresh. And so I can see the things that I didn't see before. Uh, and the other thing I would say is if you're writing about rural black people, you gotta get to know rural black people, right? And you have to make connections with people so that they will show you things that they might not otherwise. A lot of times the archives, the archives exist, but they're often home archives or barn archives or back closet archives or big Tupperware bin archives, right? Not traditional archives, but those resources are, are so, um, they're still important. And yes, I'm, Dr. John Press, what you, what you shared is, is really, Fascinating. I've also experienced the same thing where, you, like you said, you 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 pick up a, a breadcrumb and you're not quite sure where it's going to go, but you, you kind of follow it and then you leave it alone for a while and you look at it again and it's a completely different breadcrumb. Um, yeah. As educators, I think it's so important that we preserve and promote this kind of history in particular, you know, not just for our own learning and understanding, but for the learning and understanding of future generations. Right. Right. When you're working research, can you share about how women in general and Black women in particular have shaped not only politics, but education, civil rights, and honestly, the entire forward development of the South. What didn't they have their hands in is what I always tell people. I mean, I'm, I'm astonished. I'm astonished by all that they do. I mean, in the last chapter of my book, I wrote about a woman named Annie Zachary Pike. And Miss Annie, she, she's still alive. She's in her 90s. And if you look at what that woman did, if, if there was a committee, she was on it. She was on it. She was heading it. She was doing work on its behalf. She, she was on it. I'm talking about things like, I don't know, being on a water commission to improve water access for rural folks in Phillips County, Arkansas. She was on um, the Farm Bureau at one point. Um, she and her husband, 
uh, cut out part of their land so that they could build a subdivision, the Zachary subdivision for sharecroppers who had worked on their land so that they could own their own homes as um, agriculture in, in Arkansas became uh, increasingly automated. Um, she lobbied on behalf of Winthrop Rockefeller as a Republican in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And when he was elected, he appointed her to the welfare board. She was a member of the Arkansas Association of Colored Women. She was a member of the NAACP. She was a member of the home demonstration clubs. I mean, again, what didn't these women do? And she ran a farm. I'm tired just talking about it. I can't even imagine what her life was like. And there was no microwave. <laughs> and, there, and there was no micro, you know, there was none of that kind of stuff. You know, um, no microwave. This is the Arkansas Delta. Folks don't, don't have air conditioning. You know, I mean, they're they're living they're living lives that um, they're living lives that it's hard for us to imagine. But the truth of the matter is, it wasn't that long ago. Wasn't that? It wasn't, we're not talking about a hundred years ago. We're talking fifty or sixty, because the other right. thing people don't realize is that um, agricultural mechanization came to Arkansas late. So there were people still sharecropping in the 60s in this state. And so, yeah, she's, she's involved with all of that kind of stuff. Now, this is a little unassuming woman who lives in Marble, Arkansas, owns all this land in Marble, Arkansas, who knew the governors of the state of Arkansas, who knew presidents, right? Extremely well-connected woman down in Marble, Arkansas in Phillips County. So... When I met this woman, and, and I'd like, if I, if I can, I'd like to tell you the story of how I met her. I happened to stumble across her name and I kept asking people about her. And um, finally, I was able to talk to her on the phone and, and I went down to Marvel. And I tell people, this, this is where I had to utilize a different set of investigative skills as a historian. It wasn't a matter of walking in this woman's house and say, well, give me all your information. She didn't know me and I didn't know her. And so what we had to do first is establish a rapport, right? Which meant she had cooked up all this food. I think it was like beef stew, pork this. I can't even remember what it all was. Now, mind you, I don't eat beef, I don't eat pork. But I had to eat it. Because not eating it sent a really important message that would very well have resulted in me leaving her house without any information. Mm-hmm. And so it was in that moment where I had to do something that I didn't have to do in traditional archives. I had to demonstrate cultural currency, right? She didn't know me. I didn't know her. I was a stranger in her house. And, and so it was building that relationship first that then led to the outpouring of all of these resources. You go traditional, to a traditional archives, you ask, you ask for a finding aid, they give it to you and you move on about your business. You can't do that when you're trying to access folks' resources. It's, it's personal and you have to build relationships and you have to maintain those relationships as well. And so that's the work that a lot of people don't realize they have to do sometimes when they're doing this kind of work on people whose lives and whose stories aren't going to be found in the archives. I, you know, and I think that the point you made about the, the cultural currency is so important, especially for those of us who are educators, because that's also not only when that's how you build rapport with students, but if you're an educational leader, that's how you build rapport with your teachers and administrators. You have to build that cultural 
currency and you, it takes cultural competency. And, and I love the fact that, you know, you demonstrated, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I would, what I would call the humility to engage with someone in their own house in their and own engage house. customs that they, you know, so that, right. that is beautiful. Um, right. yeah, right. I'm just, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it was important. And I've had to tell students about that in the past. I remember once I had a student, right. When I wrote out this list of questions and I sent it to her and told her to answer it, whoever the her was, I don't recall. And I thought, how's that working out for you? <laughs> I can promise you, you sent me something like that. You wouldn't get an an answer. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so what I had to express to this person was these relationships matter. They don't need you. You need them. <laughs> you need them. <laughs> you need to mm-hmm. develop that relationship so that they feel comfortable about sharing their life's work with you. That kind of leads me to the next question because I think that um, as you're dealing, working with your your students that you have now, a lot of them we would call digital natives, mm-hmm. but that elements that you talk about that um, that the human cultural, element, yeah, that cultural humility, if mm-hmm. you want, and and that ability that ability to develop relationships. I'm curious about how your students are navigating those digital spaces and those digital learning tools, especially in the process of research and history. And how, as a professor and a researcher, have you seen the field impacted by, by those digital tools um, and those, those patterns of learning with those digital natives in those digital spaces? And how is that impacting the field if you've seen it yet? And if you have, how so? Well, I, I think I think I love working with digital natives because it's not just about what I'm teaching them as a historian, it's about what we're teaching each other. And I'm the sort of professor that yes, I started off using paper notes. That's what I was taught to do a hundred years ago. And then it's like, okay, there there are different and more engaging ways that we can get this information across to people. I don't know how to do that, but you're 21 and you do. Right. So how how can we help each other? I mean, it really is a matter of democratizing the learning space. We're all here to learn something from each other. Case in point, when I first started using Zoom in my classroom, I think the first time I used it, I had a total meltdown. I didn't know what I was doing. And so I designated a student. This was years ago. I designated a student. I said, you're my Zoom person. You're my, until I learn how to do it, you're my Zoom person. I think, and I think that makes another really important point about humility. I own what I don't know. <laughs> I stand firmly on what I do know, and I own what I don't know. I don't know, you know, how to do this. I mean, I grew up in a world where, you know, you still had a rotary phone. Okay, um, and and so these, these these young people, that's not their world, and and so you know, how can they help you learn? What are the apps that that we can use in the classroom to help you get this information across. And conversely, you know, I said like newspapers.com and all these other wonderful uh, databases. Before I became an administrator, I was using those in my classroom, right? Because I want them, I wanted my students to be able to see, I don't know, the green book, you've heard of those, right? I want you to see the green book from, I don't know, 1945. And I want us to go through it page by page um, in the section on Arkansas, so you could see where Black people could and couldn't go in Arkansas, 
once upon a time. I don't think it's as impactful for me to tell you that, but for you to actually see the document up on the screen and we can go through it one page at a time and you can see where you can stay in Arkadelphia or in Pine Bluff or some or that or the fact that Jonesboro wasn't on the list at all. Um I I I am I'm into it. And I and 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 I would be the first to admit with any new technology, we're intimidated by it. I was terrified of Zoom. Now I've used Zoom, WebEx, and everybody else by now. Um, but I think you have to cultivate an environment where people are teaching each other. I I have no interest in being the sage on the stage. If I don't know and you do, I'm gonna stand there and listen to you. And 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 conversely, I think. The students begin to understand that historical research and new technologies, digitization, these things are not mutually exclusive. They are not mutually exclusive. They can go hand in hand. And they go hand in hand very well. Yeah. I, I love, you know, clearly you you are a, a person that believes that history is always present, right? History is not only always being made, but it's always irrelevant. And I, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think we can learn so much by by looking at and building on what has been done in the past. I think that's literally how innovation happens, right? right. And so right. I'm curious, uh, what lessons have you learned in your research that you find relevant today for the way that we approach and teach history? What lessons? Um, women have always been political actors. <laughs> Black people have always been political actors. Rurality, I say this all the time, this is not my original quote, but rurality does not equal ignorance. That's a particularly important lesson to get across to people, the, the, the people I teach, the students I teach, because they're often coming from rural areas around Jonesboro and, and Craighead County. And so it's impressing upon them that look at what Arkansas has given to the world. And most people in the world eat rice that come from Arkansas. Right. And and so these these are all things that we ought to know about more than we do and things that we we ought to celebrate. I'm always telling my students as, as historians, when I used to teach my civil rights class, I don't want to see a paper about Martin Luther King. I want you to write a paper about something someone did in your neck of the words, woods rather. When somebody says, oh, there's no history there. Trust me, there is. Hmm. That's the real work. Go look for what happened in your backyard, right? There's something there. There's something that's long forgotten that's there. Now you go nosing around, do some sleuthing and find out what it is. And recognize that your history in Arkansas, in the Mid-South, in the rural South is important. I so appreciate what you have to tell, with you, tell your students. Um... I've been born and raised in Arkansas with a brief stint in another state when I was in my adolescence. And I remember my first trip. Um, well, actually, it was when we moved to Michigan when I was um, in between being in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. And I had a specific educator that was my teacher who, because I spoke slower and I had a Southern accent, put me in the lowest reading group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And so I experienced that bias of if you're from the South, you're slower and you're not as smart. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, it's and, real. It's, and it's yeah. real. And I mean, for me, that that was an eye-opening moment. I was a nine-year-old girl 
And you know, and you have forgotten it. No, I have not. And, 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 we're still, and we're still dealing with that. I, I, in the past, have taught students who have gone on to well-regarded doctoral programs, Purdue, Cornell, places like that. And I remember I had one white male student from Pocahontas, Arkansas, and he got into Purdue. And I remember him coming to me and asking, Dr. Branch, are they going to think I'm dumb or stupid or however he phrased it when I go to Purdue? because of my accent. I said, everybody has an accent. Dialect is not equal intellect. Dialect is not equal intellect. And I said, um, they haven't heard you speak and they accepted you. So obviously you have something, you know, to offer, offer, offer them. And so, you know, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. And, and so for me, it's been incredibly important to push students to realize things they didn't even know were possible. I mean, I have a former graduate student. I just talked to her before I got on with you guys from Palestine, Arkansas. Y'all know where that is? About that big, right? And this young woman, she, I, I advised her as an undergrad. I advised her as a graduate student. And I remember when she got into Cornell and um, she came to my office and she told me she got in. And I just sort of looked at her. She sort of looked at me. And then I said, close my door. And then we jumped around a little bit. We got in the <laughs> But before she went, I um, had encouraged her to apply at a two-week-long program at Columbia University in New York City. And she hemmed and she hawed. Well, I don't think I'm going to get in, so I'm not going to apply. I'm like, well, if you don't apply, yeah, you're not getting in. But apply. Apply. When I'm going to do it, because you say so, but I probably won't get in. First of all, stop saying that and apply. She got in. She got in. She wasn't waitlisted. She got in. And mm. then, and then, because she was so certain that she wasn't going to get in, she didn't ask them for any money. No. Yep. She didn't ask them for any money. She said, "I, I can't go because I don't have any money." I said, "You email those people right now." And you tell them you are coming from <laughs> Delta to New York City. You cannot do it without money. You need funding. You're not coming from right up the street. You're coming from the Arkansas Delta. You need funding. You know, she got that funding. I said, don't. I said, don't. The world will tell you no enough. Don't you tell yourself no. Mm. Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I hear that. Hey, yeah. One thing I want to say. Uh, if if I ever apply to anything, I want you in my corner, number one. Uh, <laughs> the, other thing, the other thing I want to just kind of reiterate for our audience that that you said that really really struck me, uh, you know, being being a black man, you know, born and raised in Mississippi with family in the Delta, uh, you said morality does not equal ignorance. Absolutely. And I'll say it again for the audience, just in case y'all might have missed it. Rurality does not equal ignorance. ignorance. Um, yeah. Such a powerful and, and true statement. And I love that you not only, you know, carry that quote with you and, and say it out loud, but you also live it and you help your students understand it. Because um, it, 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 you know, I've, I've seen when people do accept that as a truth mm -hmm. um, in, in students and in, in teachers, um, and it's not true. So it's it's nice to have someone say it and have someone live it. So thank you for that. 
and I say this, by the way, as a woman who did not grow up in a rural space, mm -hmm. I, like, I mean, I spent a lot of time, my mother is from off the sea islands of South Carolina. So I spent a lot of time there, mm -hmm. uh, but that's not where I, I grew up. But yeah, that's been very important to me in my career as an educator in Arkansas is letting students, I don't care who you are, what you look like. It's like, look, you can, you can do this. You, all you have to do is take that first step. You can even do it scared as long as you take the step. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And the same thing goes for women. I've had women students who are like, I can't do this. You got a 3.5, what can't you do? <laughs> Dr. jones Brands, you shared a bit about the important history of how women have changed the course of the of South in politics, civil rights, and activism. In terms of your work in history, how do you see emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, chat GPT, for example, affecting the future of recording, researching, and teaching this history, especially for those marginalized voices? Ooh. I'm still working through that. I'm still working through that because it's it's so brand new. I think I think in terms of I think it can give marginalized people more of a voice than what they've had before. But I'm still trying to figure the rest of it out because you know there with every benefit there's a disadvantage and I'm just trying to see what that is um at at this point but if we are able to give marginalized people more of a voice to tell their stories, to create narratives in which they are centered, then I think that's a step in the in the right direction because we need more of that, not less of that. Definitely, definitely. And I, I love that you did introduce me, right? And, and our audience, if they did not know, uh, to Miss Annie Zachary Pike. I think those those that's one of those 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 people in history that have left such a legacy, but they're lesser known. Right. And so, you know, after this, I'm gonna take some time to read up on Miss Annie and 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 see the things that she did, um, so that you know I will know. And and if if I meet someone who doesn't know, I can share. I just um, read the last chapter of my book. <laughs> yes. Oh, wait wait a minute. What was the name of that book again? Yeah, Better Living by Their Own Bootstraps. Black Women's Activism in Rural Arkansas, 1913 to 1965. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, and I also wanted to add that one of the things, um, and I, I know a little bit more about um, AI, artificial intelligence, um, but um, as you're talking about this, and, and I do want those voices to be heard, one of the concerns that we have is the how far back the information is being retrieved for like things mm -hmm. like ChatGPT, um, and evidently a lot of the historical pieces are being left out if it's prior prior to 19, I mean, prior to 2019. And I didn't know if mm. y'all knew that. Mm -hmm. And so oh. I think it's really important as educators that when we use things with artificial intelligence, uh, there's benefits to it, but we also need to look at what may be missing or what, right. may, what, what may be misinformed. And so... Um, as people utilize it, which I think it's great as an accessibility tool and to right, break, break down some barriers and things like that. But on the flip side, we need to be, I would say, conscious awareness 
of what may be not may not be there. Um, I'm going to refer back to our previous um, episode where um, Rich talked about histories like a donut. And a lot of times we're missing the middle of what's missing in the middle, you know, um, we get mm -hmm. everything else, but we don't get the middle and chat GPT, I think is a lot like a donut mm -hmm. and it leaves out the most important part in the middle. Um, and so mm -hmm. the stories like you talked about with Miss Annie, um, that are not as well known because AI operates off of, uh, averages, right those outliers that are so important to our history and our and and the context of what we live now um if we don't know that those outliers are missing we can go less informed and we also um, leave behind an important part of who we are and what we're doing and then we risk repeating some of the same mistakes in history we repeated before absolutely and i mean and of course that's been an ongoing issue <laughs> in history anyway, uh -huh. where um, we're telling certain kinds of, of stories from a particular perspective and not even thinking about including the other voices. And it's not a zero sum game. It's not as if one voice matters more than the other. It's about making sure all the voices are heard. Well, and it reminds mm -hmm. me of this TED talk um, that was presented in one of my graduate classes that talks about um, the one story and right. like, um, you may know what I'm talking Danger about. One story. I know exactly, yes. exactly what you're talking about. Right. And right. that's what I think about is like, if we're hearing one story and we're seeing things in one way from one perspective, we need to step back and ask ourselves what's missing here. Right. Mm -hmm. And we also have to be conditioned to do that. Mm. We have to be conditioned mm -hmm. to do that because I think about you know, myself as a historian, I always knew I wanted to be a historian before I even knew what it was. But I had to be trained to ask the questions and look for the voices and probe the silences, right? Mm. That, that was not my teaching in the public school in the low country of South Carolina. Um, a little more so in college, definitely more so in graduate school. But most people are not condition or trained to do that. They hear a story, that's the story, and that's and the door's closed on that for them. Whereas I've been trained to say, okay, we've heard it from this perspective. What does it look like if we hear it from this group of people? Most definitely. Yeah, that that is so powerful. Probe the silence. I I love that. Um I love that. I think I'm gonna have to get your book. I'm just gonna say <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta get your book. Um, <laughs> Dr. Jones Branch, we want to thank you so much for joining us today, taking time out of your day to talk to us about these important stories, this important work. Um, before you, we let you go, uh, how can listeners find you if they want to connect and reach out and learn more about your work? Well, all they well, I'm I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. Of course, you can always go look up the graduate school at Arkansas State University. I'm not difficult to find at all. Mm -hmm question what is your instagram and your facebook handles i don't know <laughs> <laughs> i just know i have them fair enough fair <laughs> enough uh you know uh between kirsten and i we, we will find them we will track them down and we will add them to our show notes because i'm sure that people will want to reach out to you to learn more about this wonderful history um 
And again, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us. We really appreciate it. I've learned so much and I can't wait to learn more because um, I got I to gotta track down your book. Okay, well, thank you all very much for... Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bulldog Educator. Look for another episode in two weeks. Until then, if you look for other episodes, you can find us on your favorite podcast catcher. In the meantime, you can also find us on social media on um, Instagram, the Bulldog EDU, Twitter, the Bulldog EDU, Facebook, the Bulldog EDU, and on LinkedIn through Kirsten Wilson. Thanks so much and join us again soon.